several of the production staff weren't really happy with the general way the genetic engineering thing had gone, so they wanted to explore that a little bit more, which is good. You know, it's it's a fairly weirdly untapped part of Star Trek history, and frankly, other than this one other episode in DS9 and the arc in Season 4 of Enterprise, they never really touch on this, so I'm, I'm totally down. I also have to give special praise... Praise? <laughs> praise to the crew. Let's see, so we had Tim Ransom as Jack. We had Hilary Shepard-Turner as Laurel. Lauren, excuse me. We had Michael Keenan as Patrick, and we had Faith C. Saley as Serena Douglas. And all four of them do a pretty good job with their roles. Um... So we've got Jack, who's the manic one. Now, thankfully, I've only had to deal with uh, someone who has manic tendencies once in my life. But let me just say that it's nothing like what I usually see presented as in fiction. He actually does a pretty decent job, because manic is basically just... Uh, the simplest way I could describe it is you're always dialing it up to 11. Whether that's happy or angry or violent or jubilant or whatever, just very high-pitch emotions, basically constantly. Probably this is, I think, the best scene in the episode that helps describe this. It's like, yes! Oh, this is amazing! Hug! Now do it or I'm going to break her neck! You know, that's that's actually very manic. I've seen that kind of behavior before, so good job there. Then we have Lauren. Now, she's interesting because the way the actress portrayed her was she was sensual, like a nymphomaniac is literally the word she uses. But the interesting thing is, again, sensual is fairly accurate. Not in the sexual way, although that is part of it. In the sense way, she is someone who is a little bit too connected to her senses. You'll notice she's almost always lying down, and she's almost always... Well, I mean, I can't do it because like, my legs are down here. And I, you don't want to see me rubbing my pants. But the point being, she's just kind of always has some kind of tactile sensation going on in almost every scene she's in as she's constantly connected with that sensation, which, of course, is a nice parallel for Serena. I should say contrast for Serena, who is disconnected. She is someone who is so smart and so intelligent that she can barely function physically. That Her mind is going just a bajillion miles an hour, just like everyone else's is. But it's it's not properly connecting with the rest of her body. So she seems catatonic, and it takes tremendous effort for her to do anything physically. And, of course, the final one is Patrick, who apparently was very liked on the set, and a lot of people rather praised his portrayal, and I actually tend to agree. He is someone who has no emotional filter. If that doesn't make sense, let me try this one more way. He has been described as childlike, not childish, childlike. But one of the key points that not a lot of people seem to understand is that a child, one of the things that defines being childlike is not having as many filters, emotional being one of them. So imagine if for a moment that everything you feel, you immediately start to display, just like that. And that's kind of what Patrick does. Most of us have things where we just kind of lock down, or we you know, prevent it, or we try to side, you know, circumvent it, or we don't let it get in the way of our feelings, because we have filters we've developed over the years. So all four of them do a very good job of portraying each of them distinguished from each other. And... <laughs> They'll be coming back in a future episode, so keeping the recurring trend going here. <laughs> now, they also had a couple other thoughts. They really weren't sure what exactly to do with the set for this, because they wanted there to be, like, one set that the quartet usually acted in. Uh, 
They actually had quite a few ideas. What I find funniest is they settled on the cargo bay for practical reasons, because it's a big set. But if you think about it, they invited four super genius people who are guests who have been invited here. They stuck them in the cargo bay. <laughs> think about it. Because that's one thing this episode does do fairly commonly. It shows a natural bias against the genetically enhanced. We see this most strongly in Worf and O'Brien. Worf! <laughs> well, let's move on to the next topic, shall we? Now, I actually kind of briefly discussed this the last time the genetic engineering thing came in, but this episode actually discusses it in full. The idea of, well, if we allow genetic engineering, that's going to unintentionally establish a new standard. If it gets to the point where genetic engineering is freely available and readily available, then people are going to want to do it just so their children can compete, which is then going to mean that other ch other parents are going to have to have their children do it so that they can keep up. It's going to establish a new baseline, a new status quo, effectively, at least theoretically. Now, that is just a prediction, <laughs> but you can see why that is a very real problem. This is actually something that's come up in the Deus Ex series as well, uh, with regards to the cybernetic enhancements. So you can see why this is a bit of a tricky topic. You don't want to encourage this, and you don't want to make this the new norm, which then immediately leads to, well, what do we do about the exceptions? See, Worf's point is very logical. Bashir makes a counterpoint. We can't punish these kids for what their parents did. But at the same time, you can kind of see why you have to. Hear me out for a moment. Bashir, of course, speaks from what I would refer to as the intangible. Yeah, I know, it's it's going to be a recurring trend. Uh, and Worf tends to speak from the perspective of the tangible, which I know sounds weird, but hear me out. Because Worf's point is that this could lead to a new alteration to the species, which could lead to new genetic standards, which could lead to all kinds of problems. We know this because it already has basically every other time it happened. See Enterprise Season 4. But... With regards to the intangible, Bashir, moralistically speaking, is arguing you cannot punish the son for the sins of the father. And that's something I'm completely behind, except for the fact... Picture this, if you will. How many parents do you think would willingly accept punishment and imprisonment in exchange for their children being genetically enhanced? I can name at least one off the top of my head, because that's exactly what happened to Bashir's father. My point here is that the, if you, you, you can't punish the kids, but if all you do is not punish the kids, then what you have established is a trade. Okay, we will allow your kid to continue to live and grow and be a part of society, but you, oh, you, you're going to have to pay the price. I'm sorry to say this. I, I know this is going to sound kind of weird, but... I'm pretty sure most parents would be willing to accept that for their children's sake if they felt it was sufficient reason or cause, like in Bashir's case. So, that's why you can't necessarily not punish the kids, because if you do so, all you're establishing is a fundamental cultural trade. Now, at the same time, again, it isn't fair or right to punish these people for the fact that they are born differently. Now, I know they weren't literally born this way, but my point being, no choice happened. There was no point at which in these kids' lives when they said, 
I'm going to be genetically engineered. No, this is something that was done outside of their control. Right? And that is simply unacceptable to try and put them down for that. So you can see why there's actually a surprisingly complex dilemma here. I would, as ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts on this dilemma, but one final point. How many others like Bashir do you think there are? We see four people here who are uh, not right, to put it simply, that the genetic engineering simply was not done properly, leading to the issues I described earlier. How many people were, are there where it was done right, like with Bashir? I've always had the private headcanon that there are actually quite a few genetically engineered people in Starfleet, and they just kind of get away with it the same way Bashir did, by being careful, by being precise, and only using their gifts when they absolutely have to. <laughs> I mean, that just makes a lot of sense to me, if I'm being completely honest. And if I'm being even more honest, even though they haven't even been invented yet, yes, we're in Season 6, we're actually a third of the way through Season 6 of DS9, and Section 31 still hasn't even been invented yet. But, considering that Section 31 has been around since before the Federation was, see Enterprise Season 4 again, <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to talking about Enterprise, the more this keeps coming up, we know that Section 31 has, retroactively, been around since the beginning. And my point is, you can't tell me Section 31 isn't aware of the genetically engineered and probably has been employing them, or reaching out to them, or keeping tabs on them. Anywho, <clears throat> uh, look at my notes. Sorry, I just kind of got off on that one. But there, like I said, I found that to be a fascinating dilemma. Because you'll notice I haven't even given an answer to the dilemma, nor am I going to. I don't think there's a good answer there. I really don't. It is very Star Trek, though, isn't it? One of the core tenets of Star Trek is that humanity will be better. Now, what better is defined as has morphed and changed over the years, but that is one of the principal tenets of Star Trek, going all the way back to the original series, that humanity will be better than this. And I mean, that, y yeah, I'm down, yes. <laughs> That's something to be idealistic about. That's something to be positive about. Yes, woo. But my point here, too, is that these genetically engineered are following that same ideology, that humanity, that these humans want to be better. They want to do the desire to do, to be useful, is still something they hold very strongly. They want people to reach out to them. They want to interact. They want to help. They want to work. There's even this bit, if we come up with a plan for, for the Dominion, you'll listen, right? Yeah. This, of course, again, is very human on a very individual and personal level. And I have to admit, it's actually rather touching to me in a, let's be honest, an idealistic perspective. I actually know full well that there are plenty of humans in real life who have no desire to do that, to be better or to improve themselves. And that's fine, you know, within reason. So, it's just nice to think... I guess I'm getting into controversial territory. I should shut, shut myself off. Hey, there we go. Star Trek. Yeah, fiction. <laughs> uh, so there's something I call magic analysis. Uh, this is the Sherlock Holmes thing uh, for some of the variances of Sherlock Holmes over the years, where he can look at something and instantly deduce everything about it perfectly and accurately. I call that magic analysis because usually this kind of thing is done without... How do I phrase this? 
without anything that exists to back it up. They just look at something and the explanation is they're super smart, they're a super genius, and it's treated like it's a comic book superpower. And so they can just deduce things, right? I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Comic books themselves do this all the time. Now, what I find interesting about that is it's so logical why we tend to accept magic analysis. It's because real analysis in real life can deduce a huge amount of information based on everything. We as human beings take in absolutely enormous amounts of information just from doing something as simple as talking to another human being. If you pay attention to me, you can pay attention to the way I'm holding myself with my shoulders or the way I'm resting my hands and my legs right now or the fact that I'm moving my face in a certain way. Now I'm, now I'm aware of it, so now I'm doing it on purpose. But the point being, you could pay attention to everything how I am using in order to communicate with you in order to deduce what I am trying to communicate. It's something I have studied since I was a kid and have continued to study ever since because I find the whole topic fascinating. Um, so you can kind of see how you can take a... It's, it's actually only one logical leap between real analysis and magic analysis. So you can kind of see why this kind of stuff works. The problem is it is still magic. <laughs> it is still ludicrous that they can deduce the amount of information they do based on the information that is presented at hand. Now... Looking at the Damar speech, for example, it would be reasonable to look at that and say, okay, so he's a puppet, he is being force-fed information, he is not happy about it, and he's still carrying some kind of burdensome guilt. There's something just weighing over his shoulders. And... Yeah, I'd say that's probably all you could deduce, realistically speaking, from one random speech from Damar. Maybe some of the alcoholism, because there's some signs of that that might show. But otherwise, that's it. And the alcoholism itself could add to the whole guilt thing I just referenced. So the whole thing, they pull way too much out of that is what I'm trying to say. And I know that this is coming from someone whose job it is to analyze fiction for a living, but trust me on this one. So there's this really good good bit. Uh, apparently, Jeffrey Combs had a really hard time with this. He had to speak in Dominionese or whatever, but he had to make his inflections normal. And apparently, he had to practice the hell out of that because, of course, he did. Uh, anybody who's ever uh, learned another language, when you, it's relatively easy to recite the lines, but actually saying them in the correct manner as if it's your native language that is much, much harder to do. So I can see why this would be such a problem for him. But I also want to point out that both he and uh, Casey Biggs, who plays Damar, had to do the holodeck thing. The holodeck thing, and I give special praise to Star Trek actors whenever they do this, is they do, they do that bit where they're acting, but they're a holodeck character, so they can't react to someone who's like, this. <laughs> and so in the, in the scene, Patrick is there going, just looking really close at Damar. And, of course, Casey Biggs, who is physically there on the set, has to just not react to this guy who's getting right up to his grill. It's, it's more difficult than you'd think. It's just I just wanted to give special praise for that. So then they give their predictions and their plans and their pads and their pads and their pads. And they mention how uh, within the year, the Romulans will side with us and the Cardassian internal problems of the Dominion will erupt. Funny predictions. So they decide to dance, because they're very happy. Yay! They've, they've been useful, probably for the first time in a long time. And, <laughs> I don't know, just interesting to, to note. But 
It's the first time we see Lauren. Yes, Lauren actually stand up. And she doesn't do it often. In fact, she only does it twice in the entire episode. Just interesting to think about. And O'Brien comes in, Mr. Uncomplicated. Now that's amusing because what they do immediately after is not magic analysis. What they do there is real analysis. O'Brien just wants to hang out with his friends. So he came up with an excuse to come down to see Bashir and he just wanted to hang out with his buddy. That is pretty easy to deduce. Ignore, among other things, they know the plasma manifold is actually fine, or whatever it was. But it's it's written all over his face. O'Brien is not a good liar. So that is much... And this, I'm saying this to give this in contrast to the earlier DeMar speech. That is real analysis, as opposed to magic analysis. So they go off and they have fun. Mr. Uncomplicated. They have a very good scene, and you could see the tension there. Because there is, as I mentioned earlier, a, a bias against the genetically engineered. And frankly, in reverse, too, Bashir kind of falls into the lapse of being biased against normies during this episode. And he kind of dips his toe into it a little bit. You can kind of see how and why he is... Well, there's this tension. There's this problem between them. The episode then does something very subtle that I don't think I've ever caught before. O'Brien wins the game of darts. Now, yes, Bashir is playing at a handicap, but Bashir is superior to Bashir, to O'Brien in effectively every way when it comes to the game of darts. He knows the math, he knows the angles, he has, he has superior hand-eye coordination, he is, superior, he is stronger, better reflexes. He is better than O'Brien mathematically, and O'Brien wins. That is a nice touch. Now, I was prepared to give this whole speech about the Foundation Trilogy, which I highly recommend people read. It's a little dry, but it's stuff that I actually happen to enjoy. By Isaac Asimov. It's actually my favorite Asimov works, by the way. For, so, for anybody who's curious. And one of the main points, especially of Foundation 1 and 2, is the idea of psychohistory. Now, psychohistory is established in-universe as a way to accurately predict large-scale events across a huge breadth of time. Now, so those of you not aware, forgive me for... So I'm about to spoil the Foundation Trilogy. I just realized that. So if you took my recommendation, you could probably just leave now. I don't have much else to say. So this is your spoiler warning. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. So Asimov has this tendency to... His, his main writing style is introduce a concept, establish it as true, and then prove it wrong. And this is his modus operandi. This is how he writes. It's actually a fascinating... Uh, li uh, literary style, if you really analyze it someday. And this is what he does with psychohistory. He invents it, he establishes it, he proves it right, then he proves it wrong. And I'm not going to give specifics, and I do still recommend you watch or you know, read the novels if you ever get a chance to, but the point is, he decides to show how one person acting in a way that was not predicted is able to completely change the entire course of history as was predicted. Because the whole point of psychohistory was that it predicts large-scale trends. Uh, to use a parallel that I know sci-fi debris has used in the past, psychohistory could not predict the specifics of the Great War in real life. But psychohistory could predict a Great War would happen within a range of years. This is kind of how this episode approaches it. I was all ready to talk about the parallels between that and this. Turns out it was actually deliberate, as mentioned in the Deep Space Nine Companion. Go figure, I... who knew? <clears throat> I guess I'm a dummy. 
So then they talk about, uh, with this whole thing, this is relevant because this is one of the main, th the second, excuse me, thrusts of the, the first is the bias and the cultural problems. The second is the Dominion are going to win. By every analysis and every report, the Dominion are going to crush the rest of the Alpha Quadrant. Now I want to remind you of something, because this is important to note, again, that they didn't get the 2800 ships, that they don't actually have a lot of, they have no Ketracel white production on this side of the wormhole at the moment, actually. And they don't have the shipyards or the cloning vats or any of the other tech and resources they really need in order to be full tilt. And despite being hampered, blindfolded, and with their hand tied behind their back, they're going to, by predictions, crush everyone else. And, you know, spoiler alert, since we know, thanks on the next two, thanks for the next two seasons, if not for several very specific moments and very unique circumstances, they still would have won. This was actually very close to being the Dominion War's victory, you know, the Dominion's victory kind of a thing. So you can see why they're predicting this. And, I, yeah, I have my note here. This is, this is while being cut off. But, of course, the premise is flawed, just like the Dark game earlier. Because one person manages to interrupt the calculations and prove them wrong. Now... This is very understandable, because what we see immediately is a nice contrast between Bashir and Sisko. Bashir is a doctor, and just like the doctor over on Voyager, to use a direct parallel, his main concern is keeping as many people breathing as possible to, as he would say it, save lives. Whereas Sisko is a leader. It is his job to maintain people as being alive rather than merely breathing. In short... Most doctors in Star Trek would be accepted, more accepting of a choice of, okay, all these people will survive, but they'll have, you know, a mere existence. Whereas someone like Sisko, or Picard, or Janeway, or Kirk, or Archer, would be someone more inclined to say, no, these people are not living. They need to have a life. Survival is insufficient. I bring that point up, not because I love that, not just because I love that quote, because I do but because it helps to showcase the two sides here, because Bashir is not wrong, per se. Bashir is merely trying to do what he believes is right, to keep as many people breathing as possible. It is Sisko who gives the counter-argument, and he does effectively say it, I'm not going to ask generations of people to give up their freedom to the Dominion. Survival is insufficient. And so you can see the two sides there. It is also interesting to note that once again, the, the theme of fighting against the, the impossible comes up. I've brought it up at Best of Both Worlds. I brought it up uh, at Sacrifice of Angels just a few episodes ago. The, he, he took the Defiant to go face 2,800 ships. Why? It's not like he's going to do it. He might take out a ship or two before he is utterly destroyed by a thousand ships firing on him at once. <laughs> he might last a second. But he still was defiant. I mean, there's the reason he named his ship that, isn't there? After all, Sisko is someone who is forged in the crucible by the Borg. He would understand impossible odds. So you can see both perspectives here. And what I like best is the episode makes a point of showing that Bashir, while he is wrong, is also not wrong. Or, in short, that it's just another mind, uh, different mindset, different viewpoint. This is made especially clear later when O'Brien comes in and sympathizes with him. Because, of course, O'Brien gets it. Of course he does. He's his best friend. So 
the bride reaches out to him and, and Bashir's like, ah, you know, it was, he, you know, taken. And O'Brien's like, no, 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 no. I mean, choosing that, choosing to side with the captain, choosing, you know, the side you didn't agree with. That had to have been hard. After all, you were just trying to save as many lives as possible. O'Brien gets it. And the episode calls this perspective out. But of course, again, just like in the dart game, sometimes individual factors can and do matter. So, uh, I actually don't think I have much else to talk about. I'm looking at my notes here. <laughs> there is this bit where they talk about how it's prefer preferable to have 2 billion people die to 900 billion people. Yeah, that's math. That's not ethics. That's, not, that's, just, that's just math. <laughs> that's just, nothing else to add to there other than my, one of my other favorite phrases, cold calculus. And a final note, it is worth noting, it could be argued that if not for a single thing, a single maneuver that they obviously hadn't predicted because they hadn't been invented yet, by Section 31, it's entirely possible that for all of the other things that happened, the Dominion still might have won this war. If not for that one thing. I'm not going to spoil the thing, but those of you who know this series know what I'm talking about. Either way, this has been a fascinating, enjoyable romp of an episode, and I stand by my statement. If this had come in the wake of You Are Cordially Invited, I wouldn't have complained. I'm sure some people would, because people are people. But this, this was a much, much better return episode other than Resurrection. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time.